0: Won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the grange point four. This is control, be we'll radio. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency.
1: Sits and serves, captains and commanders, you're tuned to the guard frequency. And, as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one inner on in the guard. This is episode 133 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and was recorded on Friday, August 19th, and made available for download Tuesday, August 23rd, over at GuardFrequency.com.
0: I'm Ken Shadow. I'm Jeff. And I'm Ostron. What do we
2: have this week, Ostron?
0: Well, in this week's Squawk Box, we tell you how modern technology is making Star Citizen tech outdated. On the flight deck, we see what news has landed from your favorite space sims as we cover helping the Herald and what we know about Star Citizen 3.0, Elite Dangerous's initial information about version 2.2, Everspace's move into beta and what that means for players, and a brief introduction to a game we've been keeping our eye on, Dual Universe. Next, we debate trade shows and their place in a crowdfunded world, and finally we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation.
2: That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on to the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Any hey, you boys, need a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Cryptor, 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 this is Jeff saying welcome to the Squawk Box everyone. Well, like putting a Pan Am plane into the movie 2001 and having the Star Trek crew pass around decks of physical data tapes, Star Citizen may be the victim of promoting a future technology already being made obsolete in the modern world. One of Star Citizen's main immersive elements is supposed to be the Mobi Glass, a wrist-mounted screen that provides an augmented reality interface to players in the game. In the real world, the closest most consumer devices have come to is the Google Glass and some smartphone apps that make use of the camera, such as Pokemon Go. Designers from MIT and Microsoft saw that Google is looking to further this wearable interface trend by embedding technology in clothes and thought they could do one better. Dual skin is their term for a thin electronic interface primarily made of gold leaf. It is thin enough to be adhered to the person's skin much like a temporary tattoo. And the gold leaf is skin friendly. As most people know, gold is an excellent conductor. And it is that property that developers leverage. The tattoo, if properly configured, can be used to control a smart device touchscreen and can even light up and respond to information such as body temperature, heart rate, and other things. The main selling point, they argue, is that the wearable leaf tattoos can be artistic, a benefit since very few people, and only one android, have found the Borg attractive.
1: I'm still waiting for the ability to display something on your skin.
2: (laughs) I, I think they really need to focus on hollow technology. I know that some cars already do this, but when you put a HUD in the virtual space between you and the windshield or some other hollow projection, I really think when that technology becomes cheap and right and you can interact with it, then these things like this gold leaf artistic stuff is going to be something but right now i don't
0: see yeah it. basically right now the leaf tattoo thing it looks pretty cool i mean as long as you like sort of geometric art cuz it's all like limited to 45 degree and right angles but right now it's basically a really sophisticated remote control at least based on how they
1: described it yeah, my only point is that there are lots of ways you could get input from somebody using their skin or, or visual or whatever. I think the display is really a bigger problem. Or if they're able to put more sensors than simply temperature and touch with this tattoo, I mean, this could have some medical applications, but simply a touch interface isn't too incredibly impressive to me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the major proof of concept they were going for here was the both the artistic angle and the lack of a profile. Like, you don't have a boxy accessory on your body anywhere. It's basically indistinguishable from your skin. They said, like, a temporary tattoo. So you could wear anything over it. You don't have to go around with anything visible well, what about on it.
1: What about the... Uh battery and the wireless chip and all those other good things. Where does that go?
0: Well, the human body is
1: a yeah. big
2: battery anyway. I mean, we generate a lot of energy and if once we can tap into
0: that... Yeah, a lot of the wearable tech that they mentioned that Google is working on basically powers itself by the static electricity and the kinetic energy that you generate when you're walking.
1: The kinetic energy things make sense, right? You have a flywheel going or some sort of weight that moves around, but it's usually attached to a battery. And I mean, I guess my point is, is that regardless of what you do for the rest of the device, you still have to have the wristwatch or whatever else that the device is attached to to keep that powered and keep transmitting the data to something else. There's lots of futuristic ways you could get around it, but we're just not there on those other parts.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, the article didn't go to any sort of a white paper or a description that gave more details about it. But at least in theory, it sounds cool.
1: Yeah, I could have some neat applications.
0: Read, seen, or heard
2: something that you think might be interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. Speed Port Bay. On approach, screen,
0: call the ball. Get with me. Our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for August 12, 2016. $118,920,955, up about $663,000. million registered accounts, up about 20000 And 1.039 million ships in the UEE fleet, up about 2900 I expect those numbers to be even higher after Gamescom is finished.
1: No around the verse this week as all of Sig's efforts are focused on Gamescom and the livestream thereof. The livestream began on Wednesday and continued through until the party on Friday, which is when all the juicy bits were revealed. First of all, clarifications on 2.6. The next patch is going to feature flyable Vanguard Hoplite and Drake Herald ships. Also, the much-delayed Star Marine FPS module will be released for the people who want to do ground-based pew-pew without losing any stuff. The arguably larger announcement was for the next patch, 2.7. First of all, it's not 2.7 anymore. Because of the amount of content they're sticking into the patch, they're naming it 3.0. It will have a full Stanton system with all five planets. Five planets! And multiple moons and space stations. The planets will also have landing zones which means the seamless space-to-ground landing system is in play. Trading, cargo, transport, piracy, and bounty hunting will all be active professions as well.
0: On the technical side, many background systems, such as Items 2.0, will be coming online. The most obvious one to players will probably be the interaction system with context-sensitive actions, rather than the generic use prompt being present regardless of what you're doing or what you're looking at and also the grabby hand system will be in play. For anyone not enamored with the images coming out of Gamescom before Friday, CIG ran another help the Herald scrambled picture. After a short wait, the picture revealed the Anvil Terrapin, purported to be the smaller option for aspiring explorers who can't afford to buy or crew a Carrick. The two-person ship only has one unmanned gun turret for armament and isn't too maneuverable, but apparently it will have ample shields and armor for defense. Of course, any of those stats could change in the near future.
2: It wouldn't be a Gamescom event without new pledge options. Accompanying the reveal of the Terrapin is the associated LTI concept sale. Unfortunately, this ship doesn't qualify as a starter because it's got a $195 price tag associated with it. But if money is no object for you, CIG is offering even bigger options. The so called Exploration Pack nets you a Terrapin, a Carrick, and a Black Dragonfly, presumably they can fit in the Carrick, all for $495. And if you want to go crazy, the Exploration Mega Pack gives you everything in the regular Exploration Pack, plus a Freelancer Doer, a Connie Aquila, and a 315, all for $895. All the packages offering LTI along with the ships.
0: The regular exploration pack didn't raise my eyebrows too much, but that mega pack is crazy.
1: Oh, well, there are people that have spent that much. I mean, I've, I'm probably—I'm one of them. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd melt everything down. Yeah. yeah, Well, maybe except for the freelancer. But
1: well, uh, the thing is, you can actually upgrade the individual ships in those packs too. So, if if for instance that package saves you. Hundred dollars because usually these are some sort of discount there. I don't know what it is um, for this one, but if it saves, yeah, you a, I
0: didn't bother to do the math.
1: If you have this, then you know you basically can skim a hundred dollars worth of credit off your account if it if it all works out there because the, the package comes with LTI.
2: Yeah, I'm still I'm still not sure what's going on with between their melting and trade-in and credits and all that. Yeah, there, and what, there
1: is there is certainly a, a game to it. And if you're in the know, you can really play around with stuff. I know I've saved quite a bit of money by melting and upgrading at strategic points. I mean, nothing shady. I don't do the grade market or anything like that. But, you know, you just watch what's going on and when things are doing and you slowly add money to something. Like I have, I have ships that I bought way back when and then they've gone up in price and then you upgrade those ships and then those ships go up in price, etc. Anyway, the Terrapin looks really nice. I like the concept art for it. I'm not Sold unnecessarily on the functionality. I don't really need a super shield ship that I that I can think of, but it's a really cool looking ship.
2: It would be a great rescue ship for our agency. I mean, it, it
1: uh, heavy shields
2: and armor. You know, replace the gun with a with a uh, tractor beam. Man, you you could go into hot spots and drag hot pilots out of the out of the fray real nice.
0: Yeah,
1: that's that's a good plan.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it has much of a cargo bay. It reminded me
1: somewhat of an elite ship. Mm, It does have kind of an elite elite boxy flair there.
0: Yeah.
2: That kind of ship, that's where we bring in our big ship, our big uh, hospital ship in, send these out into some war zone and and tractor beam everybody back. You wouldn't want to waste time out in a hot zone with uh, trying to EVA and collect somebody. You'd want to get in and survive and, and pull them back out again.
1: Well, the Cutlass Red has most of what you want already. It just doesn't have as, probably as strong of shields as the Terrapin.
0: Yeah, I think the the shields and the armor are probably mostly put on there in mind of the uh, traversing jump points mechanic, because apparently you can take a lot of damage if you do it wrong.
1: And the other thing that was mentioned in the original description of the Terrapin, I haven't read the new page yet, but the original description was the Armor and shields were for mining, so that you could run into asteroids or things could hit you and not hurt you while you're mining. Did you guys watch the help the Herald uh, reveal as it was going on Twitter? No. I
0: only saw the last picture.
1: Yeah, it was it was kind of funny. Somebody mentioned on chat that the the name Terrapin was in the top left corner of the picture and was was visible about halfway through the event, so you knew huh. what it was coming. Whoops. The original help the her- Herald was for the Buccaneer, and it made sense because it was a pirate ship, and the Herald's trying to, you know, unscramble the pirate ship plans. Now it's just any ship, I guess. The Herald is trying to look at.
0: Yeah, well, we've seen a couple of instances where attempts to meld the in-universe and outside-universe marketing have sort of devolved into no, this is just a marketing thing now. I'm a little skeptical about the amount of stuff they're planning on putting in 3.0. That's
1: what I was going to say too. That 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 vertical slice video that they took was very impressive. There was a lot of stuff they showed off in one big swoop there. Did uh, did you guys all you guys all watch the video?
0: I didn't get a chance to.
2: I was at work, so no, I didn't have had a chance to see.
1: So it, it it's it's really impressive. They had uh, everything from getting a job from a fully animated very well lip synced actor and then they took off and went to a wrecked Starfare went through the through the fought inside of a ruined corridors with like half the ship missing got uh, some data from the computer and then stole a Drake dragonfly out of the hangar bay of the Starfare landed that on a on a freelancer quantum drive over to a a moon with a pirate base got On the dragonfly and took off out of the Freelancer and then had a ground-based battle with the um, the tank thing that comes with the Aquila and uh, other pirates on on dragonflies on the ground killed them and then stormed a base and then got some cargo and picked up the cargo with the new interaction system it was very very involved showing both planetary landings land-based combat the Freelancer was firing on ground units that were that were battling on the ground, so it was air-to-ground combat there too. It showed off the interaction system, the lip syncing, and the character models, and the whole like interaction with your um, quest system. The quest system would give you, would show off videos of the the guy telling you to go do things and stuff, and that was all very impressive too. Just all around, it was a lot of stuff they showed off. How much of that was? facades i don't know because you know they they this they're saying 3.0 isn't for a little while so there's a reason 3.0 is not here right now so what how much of that is stable right now i don't know but if they get all of that stuff pulled off within the next six months or so i'll be very impressed it was a very nice slice
0: well most of the combat stuff you described i don't have I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on that, just because it sounds like a lot of it is stuff that would also be needed for Squadron 42, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility to believe that devs in the Germany and UK studios have been working on that gameplay for a while just without telling anybody about it. What worries me is more the all the locations they're promising, like the five planets, the dozens of moons, the dozens of space stations that will theoretically all be landable zones that strikes me as a little bit more of a stretch just because it seems like they've been just pulling teeth trying to get out the three landing zones they've been talking about forever
1: the planets and even part of the landing zone are probably somewhat dependent on this procedural generation tech that's going into this system here too so this 3.0 depends on, on that new tech as well as just those, those other general combat things and, and whatnot. One thing they, they didn't show off in the, in the system, was which is very important to all this, is really how the cargo works. They showed one character picking up a box and walking around with it, but they didn't show how to order other people to transport lots of cargo or how you sell cargo at a, at a station. So there's lots of unknowns there that I think are very necessary for those kinds of systems to work. If the full cargo system in 3.0 is just you picking up a box, walking in there, and then giving it to an NPC, I think that would be kind of lame. <laughs> so there's, there's there's a bunch of systems they haven't even given us glimpses of here. Yeah. But what they have given us is very impressive.
0: I have a feeling the cargo loading staff may not be a thing until they get that NPC crew mechanic all spun up like we talked about last week.
1: Yeah, maybe it's part of subsumption. That's why we haven't seen it. We can hope. Frontier has been busy at Gamescom as well, with many revelations about the 2.2 update, currently slated for mid-October, with a beta starting about four weeks before the launch date. The information shared so far has focused on passenger mission gameplay and ship-launched fighters, though interviews with David Braben have also teased new features coming to the Galactic Simulation as well. Some stations now include a passenger lounge area, where missions to carry travelers, Tourists, even VIPs will be available. Commanders looking to transform their favorite vessel into the next love boat will be able to fit cabin spaces into their internal slots. Cabins come in three types economy, first class, and luxury suites. But only dedicated passenger ships, like the new Beluga liner, can fit luxury cabins. Passengers will take up space within cabins, similarly to how cargo takes up tonnage in cargo racks. But don't make that comparison where your guests can hear. Missions may be simple bulk transport of travelers to various destinations, tourist trips to points of interest and back, or VIP excursions. Be warned, VIPs can call upon you to change destinations en route, or to stop off for their favorite exotic beverage. And if you tick them off, they may jettison themselves via an escape pod.
0: For those more interested in emulating the USS Midway than the Pacific Princess, ship-launched fighters give you the option of playing the role of fighter pilot or carrier commander. Most of the existing largest ships, as well as the keelback, will be able to fit at least one fighter bay, similar to your SRV bay now. Federal and Imperial fighters will be available as well as the Taipan, an alliance fighter considered to be quite strong but less agile than the others. A bay can carry several fighters, though appears to only be able to launch one at a time. Your commander may choose to launch in the fighter and fly it himself, very much like leaving your ship in an SRV, or NPC pilots will be available for hire at some ports. Pilot skill and cost will vary with each charging an upfront fee plus a small percentage of earnings while on board. For now, while up to three pilots can be hired, only one can accompany you at a time and serve as an AI wingmate when you deploy a fighter but stay in the captain's chair of your ship.
2: David Braben himself spoke to the importance of science to elite development and noted that only a tiny fraction of 1% of the systems in the galaxy have been explored thus far update 2.2 will bring more realistic depictions of the white dwarf and neutron stars, as well as adding volcanic activity to planetary services. He hinted that some of the materials or other gameplay elements may be linked to these planetary features. It's worth noting that his interviews so far have been interrupted by mysterious transmissions already under investigation by the community.
1: The fighter stuff looks really cool.
2: Yeah, the fighter stuff looks really, really cool. I could care less whether, whether I'm hauling passengers. What interests me is is like in my clipper, I've got these two side seats that are totally empty right now. And I, I was wondering uh, when around they're going to get to be able to fill that either with a wingmate or, or uh, what would make the fighter stuff really, really cool is if you carry a wingmate with you and he can jump in your ship. And be part of, you know, the activity.
1: Yeah, that would be really cool if you could have your friends piloting those fighters that they're mentioning.
2: Or even piloting my clipper. I mean, while, while I'm, what needs to work out there is that if I allow someone to fly my clipper, for example, they take the responsibility of the insurance.
1: It might be interesting also for people to hire other people as their, their fighter pilots. They could even have uh, such a thing as paying people for, uh, you know, specific, um, Performance objectives, or something like that. A weapons rebalance is in progress over at the Descent Underground's Proving Grounds, so watch for swinging Nerf bats. Friend or foe indicators are coming to foster love and hate in the underground tunnels. Triangles on the targeting system will change color based on who you are targeting and their attitude to you. These indicators are now lovably called Doritos and will be nacho cheese flavored.
2: Also, the training missions are now being worked on. This will be the first scripting plus AI level, which will be the beginnings of Descent Underground's single-player experience. The new Corporate War game mode is coming. If you've gotten tired of rescuing miners and started wondering if you can just skip that and do the job yourself, fear not. Within the next week or two, actually mining and bringing resources back to your base will be a thing that you can do on the proving grounds.
1: So I know a bunch of people were excited about the mining part.
0: Yeah, How many game modes does Descent Underground have at this stage?
1: There's a co-op mode. There is a deathmatch mode. There is minor mayhem. I think there might be a team deathmatch. I can't remember.
0: That mining and bringing resources back reminds me of a game. It was a space sim probably 10 or 15 years ago. I remember it had an elaborate single-player campaign where your character was voiced by Bruce Campbell, but the name is escaping me. But their multiplayer game mode was very much like that. Like, your team was able to upgrade their ships and so forth by going out to a communal asteroid field, mining resources, and then hauling them back to your base without getting taken out by the other team.
1: Well, they've already gotten to the point where points in the matches are kind of given to you based on goals of the ships that you have not necessarily just kill everybody in the match and given a goal like this I think it'll reinforce the differences of the ships even more so. So some ships are better at protecting other ships while they're mining, some ships might be better at mining, etc. etc. And then the goal here is that eventually get it to a point where it's a even play experience like um, Team Fortress or Overwatch or something like that where every ship is, is kind of fun but has a very different job and that you might want to hop between ships based on how the match is going.
0: That would be neat. The game I was thinking of is called Tachyon the Fringe, or was called.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have that too on my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Nova Logic. Yep. yep. Yeah, I love that game. i played that game for hours.
0: Yeah, but if they can get the ships balanced that way well, then that'll be a neat game mode. Because I've always, I've always appreciated games where if they design multiple classes, they actually build in a system that rewards playing those classes to their strengths. Because I felt like that was a drawback of a lot of modern FPSs: is the focus was all on the kill death ratio, and mm-hmm. like you had characters that could heal or could fortify emplacements or whatever, but there were no sort of in game recognition of doing any of those tasks. Yeah. So you basically needed you needed to rely on the altruism of players in order for anybody to assume those
1: roles. With a lot of the modern systems, the whole king of the hill mechanic is, is the big thing. So area control or controlling moving victory placements and things like that is the big deal. And I think with Descent Underground, the victory places will be where you're mining, so it, it'll be much more fluid than, than other games will probably be. It would be really interesting right. when they when they get this together and see how it, how it works.
0: Yeah, I haven't jumped into it yet initially because my computer wasn't going to be able to run it, but now I just don't have the time. But I think once they get to like a solid official release, I might jump in.
1: Yeah, I'm also excited to see what they do with the, the single-player mode and the tutorial and stuff and see where they start taking the story. I know a lot of people are kind of holding off, waiting for some single-player experience to be in the game yeah. beyond the the AI bots, I
0: guess. Everspace has moved from Alpha into Beta, and the backers who supported the project are zipping around in a slightly revamped universe, dying in new and very pretty locations. Changes have been iterative, but overall there are some distinct differences when comparing Alpha to Beta. Basic gameplay hasn't changed. Players fly out, gather resources, and progress until they die, at which point they use collected resources to upgrade their ship and go out again. As of the beta, some story elements have been added in the form of mini-quests that can be done in the various sectors one is flying through. Also there are now locked chests of goodies that can be unlocked with access keys the player can acquire. Also if you acquire some item or tech that you already have, you can break it down into raw materials for use in later crafting.
1: With screenshots of space in the game already providing background for desktops everywhere, Everspace prettied up the user interface, and an in-game text to match. The UI is also slightly more useful, displaying more information by default. There are friendly ships and stations out in Everspace sectors now. Trading ships let you buy fuel and repairs, and service stations are one up from that, providing a resource exchange on top of the gas station services. With the stations and ships, the Terrans, who are neutral to friendly NPC ships for the most part, are now busier with ships guarding stations and mining operations from interlopers. Or you, if you try to take anything. New toys to play with your actual ships include
2: deployable mines, a jump drive that lets you escape the sector, even if the game is telling you that you're not allowed to, a missile that does corrosive damage over time, and a cloaking device. Finally, there is a boss-style enemy that has been added to the end of one of the sectors.
0: So yeah, not a whole lot to discuss here, but... I just like whenever they release new gameplay footage for this game, because it just looks so darn pretty.
1: Yeah, it's a really it's a really pretty game. Actually, I, know, I need to go look to see if I have any kind of access, because I remember backing this game, but I can't remember which level I did.
2: Yeah, I did too. I, I get developer updates and stuff, I just haven't gone any further since I first saw it.
0: I backed it, but I'm pretty sure I only backed for a copy on official release. I didn't go
1: for alpha or uh, beta access. We're a little late on this one, since the initial announcement came back in May, but another Space MMO is in development! Yay!
0: Dual Universe is being developed by French developer NovaCork. The hook this game seems to be hanging on is the theoretical ability of players to freely construct ground stations, ships, and structures of any size in their universe. Alpha gameplay video shown at E3 this year demonstrated a player creating solid geometric structures freely on the ground and as cosmetic modifications to a fighter that was landed nearby. It also showed a space station large enough to be viewable as a structure from the surface of the planet it orbited. On that space station, the player was able to add some basic geometric objects again, as well as some prefab devices, though the function or label for any of them was difficult to make out from the video.
2: Beyond that, not much else has been revealed. Nova Quirk indicated that they plan to include everything from the Star Citizen template, exploration, mining, crafting, trade, politics, and warfare, along with seamless planet to space flying and no loading screens anywhere. Procedural generation, anyone? Also, their dev team is purported to include veterans from a number of major developers in AAA game franchises. So far, a trailer and the aforementioned 10-minute video are the only sources of gameplay information.
1: So with the uh, recent once-bit-twice-shy thing going on with regards to space MMOs, I'm a little wary of some of their claims. I mean, we've seen these these kind of claims before, and we've seen lots of games that do this kind of stuff, like space engineers. So it's it's not super impressive that they're doing this build-your-own-stuff thing as far as their their grand design though you know i'm personally going to take a wait and see approach
0: yeah i'm not sure exactly what they're ultimately going for here because it seems like if they just took the free building mechanic this would sort of be a space engineers or like a minecraft in space with higher graphical resolution and you know the ability to build stuff that was a little more artistic than just the the low-res polygon looking things you get in the simpler games but like you said they're promising all of the freely operating universe stuff like trade politics and warfare i don't i don't exactly see how that gets maintained if they're also encouraging their players to build you know mega gigantic space stations on their own wherever they want
1: yeah it's definitely a a catch-22 in some regards there
0: so I think this is, yeah, this is a whole bunch of wait and see, because right now it's just, I mean, they've got an actual gameplay video out, but there's always the question of how much of that is scripted and how much of that is, like, running on an actual engine.
1: Well, I mean, I, either way, the, the gameplay video doesn't look really impressive when <laughs> I mean, you consider the other games that are currently out there. It looks like somebody subbed part of Space Engineers into No Man's Sky and took all of the, uh, the pretty impressive features out.
0: Yeah, the, the graphical look did remind me quite a bit of No Man's Sky.
1: Now it's time for news we
2: didn't use. Refinery, agriculture, tech, and tourism ports variants will be adding more variety to docking procedures in Elite Dangerous with Update
1: 2.2. A small patch for Infinity Battlescape is due out by the time you hear this, fixing some of the minor bugs and adding placeholder landing zones. No Man's Sky players reported
0: a host of graphical and interface issues on the PC. Hello Games has published workarounds for most issues, and an experimental patch is available for players who simply can't overcome the bugs.
2: Elise Route Plotter will soon allow applying filters to avoid system types such as non-scoopable stars or anarchy governments. A much-needed update.
0: So No Man's Sky is turning into one of the most divisive games of the year.
1: (laughs) Have you guys run into performance issues? I've had a couple of issues where it just kind of starts chugging along all of a sudden at single frame rates and I have to shut the game down and restart it sometimes.
0: I haven't had that problem. Today I had my first startup crash. Like I went to load the game and it got past the developer screens and then just quit out. But I started it again and there was no problem, so I don't know what caused that.
2: Bad code.
0: It could be, but yeah, it's just some people absolutely despise this game and other people are like, no, I've spent 50 hours on it since it came out.
1: I'm only four or five hours in now, at least in the beginning of the game. It's extremely repetitive and you you definitely see, okay, well, there there's the, these five types of sites I can go to. and oh, here's, here, here's I'm, I'm doing this thing with one aliens, so I'm going to do the exact same thing it's been hours with the next aliens, things like that. But um, I'm, I'm hoping it gets better as I go.
0: Yeah, it reminds me very much of, like, early Minecraft, when it was like, it's really impressive and awe-inspiring sort of universally for the first hour or so, and then people's interest levels start to really take a nosedive in succession because people who have no taste for micromanagement immediately become annoyed with the inventory system and you lose them then you know people who want a scripted story get bored and they drop off and then you've got people who start noticing okay so there's basically five types of locations and the animals don't do anything so then you lose them So, uh, yeah, I think the player base for this game is going to drop off pretty quickly over the course of the next couple of weeks, and then it's going to basically be left with this core of people that can sort of self-sustain on just flying around and, you know, sort of enjoying exploration for exploration's sake, which, I mean, it isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely means that this game is not going to be a
1: universal success. Yeah, I think it has um, caught a lot of people by surprise. Everybody thought it was something a little bit different than what it is. And we'll see what they what they do going forward if they change any of the game with these patches, or whether the, the game is will just be what it is right now.
0: The only really big gameplay mechanic change they've hinted at is like base building, but I suspect that's just going to be sort of the ability of the player to craft some of the prefab structures that we've already seen.
1: What would be the point of that?
0: Well, I know that like it would be a, a help to unload your inventory if you could craft like one of those galactic shopping nodes, which would mean the inventory management gets a lot easier, because if your inventory gets full of stuff, you could craft one of those nodes, sell off whatever's worth selling, free up your inventory, and then move on.
1: But that would be a purely temporary thing the rest of the game revolves around you moving constantly and continually going so you would craft that thing and just throw it away is what you're saying
0: yeah i'm not i mean like i said it's not entirely clear what purpose base building would serve but it's a mechanic that some people have been clamoring for and i don't know if it was part of their plan or if they're just kind of try to develop it because that's what everyone's asking for even if it doesn't necessarily fit but we'll have to see
2: E3, GamesCon, and any of the PAX events, and even South by Southwest and some Comic-Cons, all of them are on gamers' radars as places where big reveals and teasers are put out by developers eager to entice customers with their upcoming products, and sometimes more importantly, get publishers to back them with funding. People got a first look at No Man's Sky at VGX and the initial Dual Universe trailer debuted at this year's E3 event, creating a lot of press for themselves and attracting publisher attention. But are they becoming the outliers? Star Citizen, Elite Dangerous, and Descent Underground all went the crowdfunding route and were fully funded, sometimes overly so, before they showed up at any large-scale gaming event. Also, many gamers seem to feel more comfortable if the game is put out by an independent or small development studio, rather than anyone backed by the traditional publishing behemoth. So, are these trade shows still places developers need to go to attract solid funding? Or has crowdfunding made that kind of investor shopping obsolete? Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate for us trade shows in the crowdfunding world. Kinshadow starts stocking conference halls weeks in advance of events, while Osteron refuses to even look at games that debut in major trade shows.
1: So Kinshadow, why do these trade shows need to continue? So the biggest reason that a crowdfunded game needs to be at a trade show is because the trade shows are no longer for the publisher game maker mechanic. It was a big deal before many of the modern game practices that come about, but now there's many other venue, venues they can also go to for those things, and trade shows are to communicate with the public. That's where you do releases, that's where you show things off, that's where you meet your fans, etc. So without presence at these trade shows, these crowdfunding games aren't interacting with the community they're ostensibly trying to represent.
2: Astron, would you care to uh, refute his statement?
0: I would. I don't think the trade shows are a good venue to distribute the game to everyone. Because, I mean, think about, like, the intro said: Star Citizen Elite Dangerous and Descent Underground were publishing all of their information about their game just over the internet with videos and demos that people could download from anywhere, which means people didn't have to spend the entrance fee and wait in ridiculously long lines to see a presentation about these games surrounded by 50 million of their closest friends and relatives. They could just sit in the comfort of their own homes and see the game even if it was being developed by a publisher
1: in Europe. And Kim Cho. The other side of this though is that lots of people do like these things. There is a percentage of the community that does like coming to these trade shows and meeting these developers and seeing these things and seeing these things at trade shows. Sure, they get a lot of publicity publishing these videos, the videos themselves, but they get an order of magnitude more eyeballs on their product and potentially funding their game by going to trade shows and putting it in front of a mass market.
2: And master orator, would you care to respond to that?
1: I would. The problem is that when you've got
0: a really small developer They may not have the resources to go to these trade shows, or if they do, it may be a one-shot deal where if they go and they flub the presentation, possibly through no fault of their own, they're sunk. Whereas if they take the less time and effort to produce a video or something like that and put it on the internet, they can get potentially a lot more return on investment. Red one, Jared.
2: Red
1: one.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: So what you're saying is that these are unnecessary. and They're just places for, you know, event holders to g- gather money from the public and, and other attendees, and basically it's, they're, they're not necessary anymore. Is that what I'm understanding?
0: Well, that was, that was my part of the argument, um, which, I mean, I really do think there's, there's two sides of it here, because I think the aspect of attracting publisher attention at these trade shows is still very much a thing. But I also think for the smaller developers, it is possibly better not to go for the reasons I stated at the end, because there's obviously a lot of effort going into this. I mean, CIG has pulled back from showing up at a lot of these shows just due to the expense and the effort required as their development needs have ramped up. And you know, CIG is not hurting for money or people. So if you've got a smaller developer, they could be sort of banking the rest of their operating capital on going to one of these shows and attracting attention, whereas they might be able to put out a video or start like a a social media blitz and get enough attention through crowdfunding to equal or possibly beat the investment they would get by going to one of these trade shows and sort of hoping to attract the attention of a Sony or somebody like that.
2: But let's look at the numbers. So after almost every trade show, that CI, and CIG is a special case, I grant you. But almost after every trade
1: show, accounts and purchases have gone up for CIG. The, the, the trick here is going to a trade show on a budget and being able to make it work, right? You can't go to a trade show and spend $200,000 on your show booth, which some of these companies do. But definitely as an indie game, you can't do that. So what SIG has done is, and and Descent Underground um, and Elite Dangerous, typically they either get very small booths or they get parts of other people's booths. So this time Star Citizen at Gamescom got Intel to be a sponsor, and they got to be part of Intel's booth. And so it greatly reduced the amount of cost for SIG to be at Gamescom. Um, I think they were even debating whether or not they were going to be doing it for a little while. And and, uh, this allowed them to get... Good show coverage, floor space. Without, with basically just putting Intel's name on on their stuff. The same goes for the other other guys. I know um, the D, the Sun Underground guys. They they go to they go to South by, but they don't get like any kind of uh, sweetheart special deal or anything like that. They they don't do a uh, expo floor thing or anything like that. They just kind of go around the um, various places and, and kind of do little pop up things. I believe. Similarly, they did a uh, the Sun Underground guys did a a thing with. Um, OSVR, the OSVR headset, and they showed off at uh, one of the other European um, game developer conferences, and got on the got on um, publicity and stuff out of that. Well, being at the trade show, but not actually being at the trade show.
2: And I think that's another key component to it. I think that if, and let's say I was a peripheral maker and I wanted to show off my cool new HOTUS I mean, a trade show or Gamescom or, or whatever you want to call these events are a perfect opportunity for me to walk up to the booth and generate interest to... Um...
0: Oh, no, I'd, I'll grant that, like, for, for solid merchandise and peripherals and stuff, they're they're great, because it's not... I mean, this is sort of focused only on the game development end of it, because, I mean, yeah, if you're developing a HOTUS or whatever, you can't, like, mail that to a customer and show them how it works, or, like, show them how it works on a video. That doesn't work, because the tactile experience is the whole thing. But... Like, playing off of what you were saying, Kinshadow, Descent, Underground, and Elite, and Star Citizen, they already had a whole bunch of momentum going in when they first started showing up at these trade shows. And I think, for example, like No Man's Sky, I, I can't help but wonder if they'd gone crowdfunding and done, like, the video developer updates along the same lines as the other games, if their hype train wouldn't have got so out of control. And same thing for the new one. Like, we just saw Dual Universe is basically promising... Okay, the universe, but that sounds redundant. But they're promising everything Star Citizen has. And I can't help but wonder if they did that at E3 in order to attract the attention of the publishers. And then when the publishers give them how much money they're actually going to have to work with, like, how many of those claims are they going to have to walk back? Which is... You know, that, that already has bitten No Man's Sky pretty hard in the ass, so
1: I th- I think No Man's Sky's issue, I think the hype would have been either there there either way. I think the developer himself is just kind of um, Molyneux in that way. Yeah. But I think crowdfunding would have helped No Man's Sky a lot by probably relieving their schedule stress. I think their schedule was probably set by Sony a long time ago and they decided to release as is. We're if this was a crowdfunded project, the current release of No Man's Sky, my my opinion, that would be their beta release or something like that, and backers would be playing that right now <laughs> rather than than everybody and their dog um, yelling about the the lack of variation in it.
0: Although, if the current version of No Man's Sky was their beta release, it would be a damn sight better than a lot of the other games' beta releases of their
1: product. True, I think this. I think yeah, it would be a really nice beta product, but it's it's kind of a mediocre release. in in many people's opinions. But again, I think that's a schedule issue caused by having a full publisher doing the traditional developer-publisher model. Whether the hype and the way that they executed at trade shows and stuff like that was symptomatic of that whole relationship, I'm not sure. But The working model there was obviously um, lacking.
2: Well, it's this host's belief that trade shows are still an important function for many game developers though I think the focus has changed over the course of the years. Well, now you know that our thoughts on it, we want to hear yours. So this week's community question, are trade shows still necessary so developers can get guaranteed money and funding to produce games? Or is crowdfunding making the trade show shopping obsolete? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show's thread at guardfrequency.com.
0: Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? We're all friendlies! So let's just be friendly!
1: Some say he knows how many licks it takes to get to the center of the galaxy in No Man's Sky, and he now flies a 1500 hours 15 after converting his 315P to military time. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. Community question, do NPCs with colorful personalities enhance immersion and the depth of the game? Or do you just want competent bots that will do their job for you without any extra coddling, encouragement, or smart-ass remarks?
0: Sean Newboy, with his usual brevity, says, Wonderful show, everyone. I always prefer important NPCs to have some personality. Vendors and function bots not so much.
1: Krell says, the closer to real players they can make NPCs, the better. This most definitely includes personalities.
2: Amontillado writes in and says, They are critical. I believe that the single most important thing to make an environment seem alive is the ability of players to randomly discover deep, thoughtful, detailed in the people and places around them. Personality is absolutely a part of the detail of a person. Without it, they are flat and lifeless. While not every person needs to be steeped in this sort of detail, Enough of them should be that a player should feel that there is a good chance of discovering something, particularly gameplay, by randomly engaging with an NPC. This is what makes The Witcher 3 seem so alive, with all the little side stories that can be discovered if you take the time to do so. As far as as having to deal with personalities in your NPC crew, I like professionalism to be a trait alongside everything else. An NPC with decent professionalism suppresses the other personality traits while on the job.
1: I have to agree with his entire statement. Yeah, it seems like everybody wants personalities in their NPCs.
0: Yeah, although a lot of people don't necessarily want to be, like, fighting with their crew in order to get them to do their job.
1: That would be kind of an interesting mechanic where you actually have to beat up your NPCs in order to to make <laughs> them go pull levers.
0: Well, I was thinking, like, in the Mass Effect games, if you tick off some of your companions too much, they can just up and leave, essentially.
1: We mentioned in the Elite Dangerous news that passengers, if you don't support them well enough, will jump into uh, escape pods, right? Good riddance.
0: Yeah. I didn't want your ass anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Although it's like, yeah, jumping into an escape pod when you're escorting somebody doesn't seem like a great sort of walk out the door and protest thing. Yeah, Then I know. they can it's just like... turn around and shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> in general feedback, Silent Hunter writes in and says, Dear Guard Frequency and the Research Badgers, so a little studio based in Guilford has released a space game. Here are my thoughts. Make sure your game works on every commonly available PC system before you release it! With a frankly unnecessary number of exclamation points after that. I've been unable to get past this starfield part of the screen and not even as far as that. With Sony doing QA for this, it should not be happening for even 1% of the many who pre-ordered this thing. Also, a simultaneous global release was a stupid idea if their servers were unable to handle the loads especially at 6 p.m. UK time on a Friday, also known as when Europeans are home from work. This is supposedly a AAA game. At the moment, it's a pain in the backside, and unless it gets fixed pretty quickly, I will be asking for my money back. Kind regards, Silent the Annoyed Hunter.
1: Phoenix Roleplaying says, Just ask for a refund on hashtag no Sky.
0: And our new Patreon this
2: week is Christopher Trone. And the winners of a brand new patch is Christopher Trone.
0: Crazy random happenstance? Back today and find out! This week's community question, are trade shows still necessary so developers can get guaranteed money and funding to produce games, or is crowdfunding making the trade show benefactor shopping obsolete? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com.
1: So how was the show? Did it have a rightful place in the gaming calendar? Or should we be retired like relics we are? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on the show's post over at GuardFrequency.com?
2: Or hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak.
0: If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at GuardFrequency.com.
1: You can use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do. So take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 133 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 134 on August 30th. So be sure to keep an eye out for our shows on our website at guardfrequency.com.
2: But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at GuardFrequency.com forward slash live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central. That's Saturdays at 4 a.m. GMT.
0: Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at com. You can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, as well as being entered into our weekly draw to win some guard frequency goodies. We want to thank all our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week, and hope that you'll consider making a regular contribution. Because the more support we get, the better show we can make.
2: Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you fly with us. Check out our website and look under the call sign section for details on how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series to the MMOs, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out over
1: at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Lowmaster, our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pintad, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. A big shout out to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkies for his permission to use his music on our show. Visit RonaldJenkes.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lumped.
0: Reduce thrust. Time to three three zero, carible one five. Squawk seven seven zero zero. Stay on the ground.
2: I'm waiting for my phone to stop ringing here.
1: It will have full Stanton system with all five platinums. Kind of five, five. No, I said that wrong. platinums. Platinums. Yeah. I was going to gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna pivot that little joke there, and I totally screwed it up.
2: Accompanying the reveal of the Terrapin, it is associated LT1 concept sale. Oh, wait. I got to read that again. Yeah. Life,
0: uh, lifetime was... one. You will, you
1: will only have <laughs> no, one of everything.
2: It, it's a Chevy motor. Never mind. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Um. Though interviews with David Brayton. David. Br- 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 <laughs> <laughs> though interviews with David Brayton. I can't. I stopped being able to say his name. And now hold
0: I think you got it right in one of the takes. So just go on with have also.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I can do this. One sec. Though interviews with David Brayden.
0: And the hook in this game seems to be hanging on its, right. I wrote this sentence. I should be able to read it. That tat top, if proper. No, sorry, that's a typo. <laughs> okay, Just I shortly. thought it was Tattoo. a new term. <laughs> 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 yeah, that has Still spelled typos wrong, in but that's okay. Word. I
1: know what it is. Red one, Jared. Red one.